Hello, everybody. This is Tom Harrison and Ken Krogh with the Eternal Core show, the podcast, and vidcast. We're doing both together. And today we've got Jessica Zercher. She's a communications professor at BYU. Done some really interesting research. So we wanted, and she's also a pretty good friend. We're, we're grateful mm -hmm. to have her on the show with us. Thanks, Jessica, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Great. We've been uh, we've been looking over. There's a lot to read about your background. So uh, we wonder if you could maybe give us a bit of an overview of some of the, the projects that have brought you to where you are today. Yeah, you bet. So um, I actually, be before working at BYU, I taught in secondary education for like eight years. So I had an opportunity to teach um, theater and public speaking in English. And I worked with middle school and high school students. Um, I now work with graduate students. So I've gone the whole spectrum. Lots yes, of teaching have. opportunities. Um, and so that's kind of where my love and interest in working with young people started. And um, during that time, I had some experiences that really influenced my overall trajectory and research of where I am today, um, specifically working in, and just watching as students interacted with technology and seeing some of the amazing things that can happen because of technology in, in the world that we live in today but also some of the perils that, that many people experience because of technology or you know, some of those things that align together. So um, one experience in particular that I'll, that I'll share just really quickly with you. Um, I remember going into my uh, middle school seventh grade English class and that day specifically we had, um, the students went and grabbed their computers and just started doing their English assignments. And I had one student that grabbed his computer and started going on things, but I noticed, you know, about halfway into the, into the period, his laptop started to shift a little bit away from me. And so immediately as a teacher, I thought, oh my goodness, I should go and check on the student and see what's, what's going on. Um, and so I walked around and meandered behind him and this student was very innocently playing a video game online, you know, throwing chunks of cheese and jumping over different objects. But um, what was alarming to me, what was in the left-hand side of his screen, and that was a, a pornographic image. Um, wow. So this student wasn't searching for this particular image at all. It had popped up at him. We had filters in place at the school. Um, and for me as a teacher, especially trying to keep these students safe from different types of content, both you know, emotionally and physically as well, this was, uh, this was alarming to me. Um, and so this really directed my interest. I was doing my PhD at the time at the University of Utah. And so this really directed my interest in terms of what's being done about some of the harmful content that adolescents encounter online, um, specifically with pornography. I've also done some work with cyberbullying as well. And, and what role specifically can parents play in, in efforts to try and combat or to help children engage in, in this digital environment that they've been placed in during this time? So wow. that's kind of where my, my research went. Um, and it's been really cool to watch um, as the Lord has placed different experiences and opportunities in my life um, in, you know, because going into a PhD, PhD program, I did not anticipate at all that I would study um, anti-pornography movements. It, it was a little bit scary to me to try and figure out how can I help in this area. But the Lord has really guided and directed um, my, my course and direction um, and it's opened up some really cool doors as well as helped me to realize just how important family communication and parent-child communication specifically is in the digital media and environment that we live in today. What surprises 
uh, came to you from your experience in receiving that help from the Lord? Um, you know, I had one professor during my PhD program where she said, are you sure you really want to research this? Are you sure you want to be stereotyped as the pornography researcher? The porn lady is what she called it. Um, and you know, it, there was, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, oh, I forgot the, my train of thought here, but there's essentially, there's a lot of confusion or a lot of ambiguity is what I was looking for in terms of the concept of pornography and how it's talked about both culturally and within families. Um, and so even just talking to different people of saying, Hey, this is something that we need to explore more in terms of the anti-pornography movements and how it's being talked about in families. Um, that, that definitely has been somewhat surprising, but also it's been amazing to watch how the, the Lord has opened up those paths. I always find it very interesting what we plan or what we project is going to happen. And then all those interesting little twists and turns that come to us when we truly get into it. And often it's much different than our projected reality of what we thought it was going to be. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and, and as I went along in doing this research and still there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but one, a couple of really cool things happened. One specifically is um, I finished my dissertation and then I was actually contacted by um, UCAP, which is the Utah Coalition Against Pornography. Right. And they said, hey, you know, we are looking for research having to do with parents in the state of Utah as we're trying to push pornography as a public health crisis within the state of Utah. Mm. Do you happen to have anything for us? Um, and so it was really cool to say, yeah, you know, here is all of this research that I've spent two years looking at and conducting and analyzing, right. and please use it to do something good. So that was part of the research that was used in pushing forward um, pornography as a health crisis in the state of Utah. So little things like that have happened along the way to, to open up some of those doors. Are, are more people getting involved? Is it, is it becoming a real constructive uh you know, program that, that you feel like we're making progress? You know, I think in terms of the conversation, I, I have seen more, more of a push, you know, fight the new drug is doing some amazing things. Um, the various coalitions in different States, I've had the opportunity to work with, um, enough is enough, which is a national organization that has mm -hmm. done several movements in terms of having more open conversations and, and dialogue. So, you know, and it is really interesting talking about this subject because I talk about my research in my communication classes with my students and um, they're very open and wanting this information. And so for me, you know, I, I was nervous to share because it's, it's kind of, a, it's a very sensitive and difficult topic. But as I've done so, um, I've been amazed at the, the, the need and the awareness that people have about it. Mm -hmm. Jessica, one thing I've found in my own clinical practice is there is often a real distance between what the pornography user thinks of what they're watching and why they're watching and what that means and what the parents think or what the wife thinks or what the other people in their community. And I find personally, just clinically, the more I can bring those together, the more I can help the user be able to communicate that to their wife or to their parents 
or to their therapist. And when they're on the same page and they understand that definition together, I see that the treatment works far better. What would you say about that? I, I don't know if that's just a clinical observation or if there's any of that that proves out in the research. Um, and my battery just gave me a notice saying it's about to die. So can I plug it in real quick? Yeah, please sure, do. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, we can, we can edit. We'll stall. We can edit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can edit this piece. Make a note. Edit this section. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, I had to scramble a few minutes ago the same thing. It said 6%. Well, I'd rather have her doing it than both of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means she turned it sideways to plug it in. <laughs> nice couch. Reconnecting. Your connection is poor. I hope we survive. We okay there, uh, Gainer? Yeah. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Are you there, Jessica? Oh, oh no. We lost her. That's Colin. okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll just set it all this out. I think we lost her power. I know those guys. You have two more minutes to guess the right answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> can you hear me? We can hear you. We're waiting for the video to crank back. We can hear you, but we can't see you, Jessica. Well, there we go. There, there you we are. Go. Okay. Now the we're going back in. I'm going to clap. <laughs> okay. I lost video with you guys, though. You know, that's okay, because we can hear you. Okay. Yeah, yeah and I you just, look great, I by the way. You, I can't hear you. You look even better than you did a few minutes ago. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I hope we can accept. Can I make a little suggestion? Except Gainer okay. wants your, your, we your have, head a little bit higher we, in the screen again. Yeah. We just okay. lost you. That, oh, right. better. Thank you. So better right there. Her camera, her camera bounces every so often. Oh, and your cam the camera on your laptop bounces a lot. Does it? If I move over to a table, I'm on my couch right now. That's probably why it's bouncing. It's like a leather couch where it's padded. Should yeah. we change that? We in probably the middle? should. Let's. Well, let, well, let's just keep going with it. Just be really careful. Yeah. If you can just, because like every time you we've move, we've got it, this it, much it makes space like a above your head. The, yeah. Can we diminish? Okay. And then put your head back up higher on the screen. There we go. There we go. We can live with that. See. That's better. Thank you. Okay. All right. I'll try and be more still. Okay. <laughs> Less oh, we're please. excited. No, <laughs> no, we're excited to see your movement. <laughs> oh, good. So I just asked you a, qu a clinical question. Uh, should we go ahead? Are we okay, Gaynor? I would love a little more, less, I mean, a little less headroom. We have too much headroom again, again. Let's see if we do that. Yeah, that's much, perfect. Yeah, that's better. Thank you. Is that okay. better? Uh -huh. Yep. Okay. Okay, let's ask the question again. Please. Okay, in my clinical practice, Jessica, I've, I've found that often when the individual that's struggling with the pornography problem, that they have a whole different definition of why they're doing or what it is they're doing 
compared to their spouse or their girlfriend or, or their therapist. And I find when we can bring those definitions together, especially yes. between an adolescent uh, young man or young woman and their parents, or es especially between a husband and wife, I find then the healing really improves. Do you find anything in the treatment that would back that up, or is that just a clinical experience that we've seen? Um, you know, there is, within the research, there is some discussion on the ambiguity of the definition of pornography. Okay. And um, the scholarship outlines several different types of definitions, which, it, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, because especially when you're looking at parent-child communication about pornography, for instance, if the, if the child defines it or identifies it very differently than the parent, it becomes really difficult to have a meaningful conversation right. when those definitions right. are so diverse. And therapy so, just fails when you have that yes. diversity. So the, the literature does, from what I've seen, the literature does acknowledge that there is this, um, this difference between how people conceptualize it. Um, and so that's one of, the, one of the key things that I found within my research is, is first educating parents about pornography, its impacts, so that they feel more of a self-efficacy, if you will, to be able to discuss it right. with others. That's one thing I really like about Fight the New Drug and those three new films they brought out, because I think it brings that definition together and people can have a shared meaning about this is what we are seeing, this is the research, and they're watching it together with their son. And then I find a communication really starts to happen that just wasn't going on before. Yes. And even even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, you know, they've released a couple of um, teaching tools, some family home evening lessons and a couple of small videos. Um, and one of the first things that they encourage children to do within those is to first identify for pornography for what it is or call it for what it is or name it. And I think that's really important, um, you know, because so, sometimes we just our gut responses to is to pull away or to, um, you know, lose that sense of openness. Right. And so, um, you know, arming children with the ability to say, this is pornography and I can, I can talk about it is important. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. In fact, that's, that's really the, the, the big part of, of, of your primary presentation is, is teaching parents how to talk to children about pornography as a tool that can assist the whole family in doing better at coping with the challenges, isn't that right? It's, it's more communication yes. than almost anything, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's building that communication environment within the home to be able to have conversations, not just specifically about pornography, but about all sorts of, of difficult topics. Um, you know, sometimes we think about talking to kids about a hard conversation. We think it's like a one and done type of conversation. And, you know, imagine a child, if, if they have one conversation, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable about, about talking about other different topics, right. it's going to be much more difficult to address those things when they do happen or when they do come up. So establishing that type of communication pattern within the home, not just about pornography, but about all sorts of different topics is really crucial in helping kids learn how to talk about right. these things. So it's much more a one and now you've just begun. Yes. <laughs> Instead of yes, one and done. Yes, much so. Okay. Very so everybody, so. this is uh, Tom Harrison and Ken Krogh. We've got Jessica Zercher. She's going to be speaking at our conference at the end of March. And what if you could give us just a couple, we don't want to give, you away the, give away the talk here, Jessica, but maybe just a couple of pointers 
things that uh, our listeners can take away even today that might assist them in doing better with communications, perhaps? And also creating them a sense of, I really want to go hear her. So <laughs> now, yeah, we're, now we're really putting you on the hot seat, <laughs> Jessica. You bet. You know, within my research, so I, I went out and did an in-depth qualitative interview study and talked to various parents as well as looked at the expansive research about parents talking to children about sex um, and about other types of uh, technology and other types of education. And um, one of the main core patterns that I found is is parenting styles, as well as this idea of open conversation or communication. So in, in the presentation that I'll be giving in March, um, that's one thing that I wanna give more specific details in how do we establish more open communi communicative environments within the home, as well as what, what are some of the tools that we can have within our tool belt, if you will, about addressing some of these hard topics. Um, you know, it's really interesting because sometimes individuals, you know, we try and, and separate these difficult issues that children are facing with um, with technology and um, adolescence. We mm -hmm. separate them and say, oh, this, this has to do with social media, or this has to do with cyberbullying, or this has to do with pornography. Um, and my research really points to this idea that if we learn how to talk about these topics and how to help children develop this idea of media literacy, um, there's a lot of power that can come from doing that, not just within specific given areas, but across the board. And so that's what my presentation will be focused on. That's well, great. I can't wait. Uh, I won't take my lunch during your talk. I'll be oh. there to listen. <laughs> You're kind. You're kind. No. In fact, I think there's a fun opportunity right here. I'm going to call an audible if that's okay. And um, I'd like to take a minute and, and explore maybe even, and we'll make it a separate episode, but since we've got everything all wired up and ready to go, maybe what we could do is talk about cyberbullying. That's really interesting to me. That's a, that's a new phrase that, uh, you know, it's just starting to have some impact, but it's, it's a big deal. And I know, I know some of Tom's growing up here as he experienced some challenges with a bully. And mm -hmm. um, I've been through that. I, you know, I... I was the bookworm growing up, and and uh, uh, had some challenges with some with some local bullies and 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 kids. That's that's a big deal. I remember how hard kids are on each other. Yeah. Can you maybe walk us through even the phrase and the whole cyberbullying concept and some of the some of the stuff that you've learned about it? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, and as I as I mentioned before, my experiences in teaching in secondary education they just really opened up my eyes to some of these issues. Um, I mentioned the experience that I had with the little seventh grader in terms of pornography. I had a similar experience um, where I had two female students um, who ended up in a massive hallway fight um, in the middle of the school, you know, ripping each other's hair out and punching. And, and it all started because of cyberbullying. Um, Define what I, the phrase means. What is cyberbullying all about? Yeah, you bet. So in terms of cyberbullying, it's it's the type of negative interactions that you'll see within bullying, but it's happening online. Okay. So there's different types of bullying. There's physical bullying. There's verbal bullying. They're tied into emotional bullying. And when the, all of that is taken into an online context, that's where we see cyberbullying happen. Okay. As a um, child, at least my bully... I, I was only concerned when I could see him coming on his bike or see him physically. But now yeah. these kids, it's going on all the time because it just continues on in their, in their 
cyber world. And I, I would think it, it would be overwhelming to realize this is going on even when I'm asleep. Because at least with my bullying experience, I was thinking about it before I went to bed, but I knew he wasn't in my bedroom. And I knew that he wasn't talking to all my friends. So I would think yeah. that it would be much more intense for a child uh, and for an adolescent. You can't get away from it. Well, and, and unfortunately, too, the, the incident that happened with one of my students, um, you know, the, the bullying started happening online and then other people joined into the, com the, the communication and started attacking this other student. And wow. so it also it kind of amplifies um, the bullying that that can happen because it, it's now happening in a community setting. Uh, which is both for the good and for the bad. Hopefully there's the people out there that will stop it because they see that it's happening. But do, they, do they step in and it. stop it? Uh, you know, unfortunately, not until it, it got into, it turned into physical bullying at the school. Oh. Um, and what was so interesting for me specifically is, you know, this happened with one of my students. I, I noticed that she had disappeared for a couple of days. I wasn't sure what had happened. And then I sat in a faculty meeting where the principal explained, okay, here's some of the various things that happened. Here's the situation. And the principal asked us as a faculty, okay, what do we do about this? And there was just silence. It, there was silence. Um, you know, because as a teacher and educator, it's hard to jump into those online contexts mm -hmm. when we're not necessarily involved with them per se. Um, you know, and so trying to figure out how to manage, manage something is happening that's not happening in my classroom, but it's so heavily impacting it. it is there any research on if this happens more in elementary, junior high, high school, and does it continue on in, in two college situations? And could you tell us a little bit about that, Jessica? Yeah, so the research, um, it traces it throughout all of those various levels. So within elementary, middle school, high school, um, my specific research looked at yet again, some preventative tools. And what we did find that was really interesting. So basically we went and we had longitudinal data that looked at um, adolescents when they were 12 and 13 years old. It looked at their perception of cyberbullying and bullying in general. And we compared that data to if their parents had addressed it with them when they were younger uh -huh. to when they were older and their attitudes and beliefs about that. And that same pattern that I found within my dissertation in terms of this, this influence that parents can have in having these open conversations about cyberbullying, we saw that very same pattern. So those children that had had conversations early on with their parents, later on in life, we saw longitudinally that they were more resistant to cyberbullying and they had more, they had more less, sorry, they had more negative uh, attitudes and beliefs about it. Um, and so the same type of pattern that I saw within pornography also as, as well in, in cyberbullying in that particular instance. So it sounds with that information that this might even carry on into adulthood. Yes. You know, yes. and with, um, sorry, go ahead. You know, depending on the maturity level of the individuals involved, this could go on, you know, far into adulthood. 
Um, yeah, in, in terms of it's really, and this is what really caught my interest, um, in terms of pornography specifically, a very similar study was conducted by Eric Rasmussen uh -huh. from Texas Tech, where he looked at conversations that happened with children about parents talking to kids about pornography when they were early or earlier on in comparison to their beliefs and attitudes later. And he found, he found that similar effect as well. Wow. So, um, you know, for me, it's been kind of connecting all these various dots into, in terms of what's happening when kids, you know, especially that pivotal age when they're 10, 11, 12 years old, what's the communication that's happening and how can that impact lifelong? I remember in graduate school, one of my professors approached me and said, Tom, you don't even know, you don't even understand what you're going to be studying and dealing with in your career. And he said, the majority of what you're going to be doing is not even an issue right now. And you know, in, in talking with you today, I'm realizing that isn't it wonderful that we have individuals and we have a society that's willing to say, yeah, in your PhD experience, in your doctoral process, we want you to spend your time because these were issues that were issues back then, yeah. but they weren't researched and they weren't talked about much. And, and we saw them very differently back mm. in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even 2000s than mm. we do today. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's definitely something that keeps me very passionate about communications because it is changing so quickly. Um, and and we're seeing very, very much that same pattern. You know, the the pornography content that people came into contact with, even even 20 years ago, very, very different from the accessibility that we see today because of the Internet. Right. So, yeah, see that across the board for sure. The now, accessibility, but also the the brain research that has taken place, we understand the impact it has, but I think we don't often think that pornographers spend millions of dollars to find and to figure out how to, how to addict, you know, a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 60-year-old or a 20-year-old. They're spending millions of dollars every year to figure out how best or what best grabs them or or gets them involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I when I first started doing my research, I was I looked at all sorts of anti-pornography organizations and what are they doing? And I realized that across the board one of the key things is we can't we can't take away or or just put a huge filter in and say this is going to do the it's going to do its job. Um, we can't rely on filters. It has to be more about teaching children media literacy and right. helping them to be able to have the steps and the skills that they need so that when they come across, whether it be pornography, cyberbullying, something they see on social media, they have the resources and the support that they need to be able to yeah. sort through that content. But isn't that the only way that we're going to resolve this? Not to really fight against those billions of dollars, but to help people know how to make choices Yes. So they say, no, thank you, or mm -hmm. I don't want that in my life. You know, yes. we, we have to choose against it, not fight the process, because the, the process is just too large. There's too many billions of dollars behind it. Yeah, you know, we, it uh, we had another episode with uh, Dan Gray, who, mm. uh, Lifestar, he's had uh, they have 34 facilities, 
around the Western region, and he shared that there's an interesting dynamic going on with the problem with pornography. It's also the access to it. They saw a huge surge when the Internet came online, uh-huh. and they saw a completely different and even more powerful surge when the mobile devices really became a force. Have you seen the same thing? Has, has the technology itself been part of the problem? Um, in terms of access- accessibility, anonymity, um, certainly, certainly for sure. You know, pornography has been around for a long, long period of time. Yeah, right. However, in terms of how it's accessed and gained, um, it's it's certainly much more easily accessed today. What's really interesting too is is where is it transitioning to? And there is some conversation. You know, all the v- developments that are happening with um, video games and virtual reality. And unfortunately, how that may play into the pornography industry, that's also what's being That may be about. the biggest it, issue yet, because it's, it's more than just visual. It becomes sensorial, especially mm-hmm. with the virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, wow. it's, it's scary. It's scary. So yet again, you know, it's teaching because kids, I mean, they're going to encounter all sorts of different issues that are related to technology. So what types of tools can we give them to help them manage and sort through all of those? Mm-hmm. Dr. Zerker, it's always wonderful chatting with you. I hope we get other chances to do this again. Thank you so much for making yourself available. And please remember on March 29th and 30th, 2019 at Little America, she'll be one of our mainline speakers. We're so excited to have you there and to have her with us too. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Dr. Zerker. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.